Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. When we tell the story of Jonah to children, we often stop when Jonah heads to Nineveh after the whale spits him out. If you stop there, this seems to be a story about a godly man who momentarily resists God's plan before learning his lesson and finding his way back to God's path. But there's more to the story. In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright tells the story of Jonah and the shrub about a man of God who just did not get the point. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. I'll invite you to turn in your scripture today to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. It is a rather short little book, just four chapters. So as you turn there, just go ahead and turn to chapter 1, even though we're really going to be focusing on chapter 4. But we'll give you an, a chance to walk through uh, the, the entire book. We're continuing this series of messages revisiting the familiar children's stories. Uh, most uh, children, if you grew up around the church going to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, these would have been narratives out of the Bible that you would have encountered. And I can't imagine that any child who hung around church very much would not be familiar with the person named Jonah. So let's start you today with a, with a quiz. Okay? Why do I hear groans? I'm not going to give you something difficult. There's actually no right or wrong answer. This is just kind of a, to see where your tendencies lie. If I ask you to finish the phrase, what would you say? Jonah and the... Yeah, Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the fish, something like that. That's the part of the narrative that gets ingrained in us, isn't it? That's the most remarkable part of the story. We think about Jonah being swallowed by the whale, being uh, spit out three days later. It's kind of a gross image, isn't it? But that's what we remember. You would not have said Jonah and the shrub. But that's really where we get to the heart of the story when we see the, the, the nature of the prophet and what God did to, to demonstrate to him where he had not really come to a place of alignment with God's purpose for him. Uh, Jonah comes to us as a prophet. Jonah is actually mentioned in one other place in the Bible. If you look back in 2 Kings chapter 14, he is mentioned there. We know it's the same Jonah because it mentions him explicitly as Jonah, the son of Amittai, as it does here in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the time frame would put it, uh, if, if we align these two things, that would put it in the history of Israel before the northern kingdom called Israel fell to the Assyrians. And so we don't know exactly where this falls chronologically, but that's really the only other foothold we have on this. So the, the narrative of Jonah comes, and we see right off the bat that Jonah gets a calling from God to go to the city of Nineveh, which was of the Assyrians, and he's to preach to them. Jonah takes off, but in the wrong direction. 
Let me see if I could give you just a little bit of a geographic image. Okay, so for all of you in East Texas, picture, if you will, that you were told to go to uh, Chicago. Okay? If you were told to go to Chicago and you got on a train going to Phoenix, would you be going the right direction? That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Okay, kind of picture that, unless you're just completely ignorant of the United States geography, you kind of have a picture of what Jonah did. It, it was as if Jonah was told to Chicago, he goes down to a port city and gets on a ship that would be going generally in the direction of Phoenix, even though you don't get to Phoenix on a, on a ship. You kind of get a picture, if you will, of what Jonah is doing. God says, go one way, Jonah says, I'm going the other. So he goes down to the port city, he gets on a ship that's bound to a place called Tarshish. He gets on the boat, they get out to sea, and lo and behold, what happens? A storm comes up. The, the, the crew of the ship is trying everything they can to uh, steady the ship and make it survive the storm, but it becomes apparent, more apparent all the time, that this, the ship is not going to make it. They can't figure out which god is upset. These obviously aren't Hebrews managing the ship. They can't figure out which God is upset, and so they're trying everything possible. Jonah is asleep in the hold of the ship. It's very interesting because you've heard in the Bible of another person who was sleeping in the hold of a ship in the midst of a storm, haven't you? Jonah's asleep. They wake him up. Uh, he gets up and he says, look, uh, you know, I, I serve the God of the Hebrews, the God uh, who made heaven and earth and, and the seas. I'm the one who is causing all of this storm. What you need to do is just chunk me overboard, and the sea will become still. Well, they don't want to do that initially, but they can't find any other way to do it. And so finally they agree, and they throw Jonah into the sea, and lo and behold, the sea becomes quiet. You'll notice in verse 16 in, verse, in chapter 1, uh, I'll just point out there, it says, that Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I only point that out because as we've made our way through these messages, time and again what you see is even though God is dealing directly with one of his own, one of the people of Israel, uh, there's still all these opportunities to make all the other people, all the other nations or people groups aware of how great and glorious the God of the Hebrew people is. It's like there's these witness opportunities all the time. And what you have are these sailors. I'm not telling you that these sailors all, all of a sudden became uh, Christ-fearing Christians. That would even be, uh, it wouldn't even be a thing at that time. But they recognize the greatness of Jonah's God, and they make offering to him. So Jonah get th gets thrown into the sea, and God appoints this great fish to come and to swallow him up. Chapter 2 is the prayer of Jonah. It's worth reading. I'm not going to point anything out to you there. But when Jonah is in the midst of the whale... You know, this is the floundering stage. You know, we've been through the fleeing stage. That's chapter 1. Now you're in the floundering stage where Jonah is just struggling because he's in the depths of the belly of the fish. Um, and when you're in the belly of the fish, what else is there to do other than pray? And that's exactly what Jonah does. And you'll see the heart of Jonah. Uh, you know, he, he realizes where he is. He's, he's just, when you can do nothing else, he's just reaching out and, and reaching out to God, giving God uh, glory and recognizing him. And so at the end of that, uh, 
the, the fish after three days, he spits Jonah out, and we start kind of over again. When you get to chapter 3, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim this proclamation which I am going to tell you. All right? I tried to tell you once, you didn't listen. Now I'm telling you again. Go to Nineveh and preach to it. So, this is Jonah fulfilling his calling. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches to it uh, a sermon. Here's the sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I realize that everyone sitting in the pew wished that your preacher would preach like that, right? Talk about beating the Baptists to lunch. You guys would be in the midst of dessert by the time everybody else showed up if your preacher's sermons were that short. And this is every preacher's dream also. Not necessarily to preach that briefly, but the whole city converts. I mean, this, this like this revival happens. The whole, the whole city, this great city, all of a sudden repents before God. In verses 5 through 9, it even says that when, when the word came to the king, that he issued a, a, a proclamation, and every, everybody is to put on sackcloth, and they're not to eat or drink, and it's like this d decree that everybody is going to repent before God, hoping that God will relent of the judgment that is about to come upon them. What a great picture. And this is what repentance looks like. This, this thing that we call repentance that we consistently hold up as part of the gospel message, this good news goes out to us, asking us first to repent of the ways in which we have walked and to turn ourselves back toward God. This is, this is exactly what the people do. It is exactly what God wanted the people to do. And interestingly enough, it is the very thing that Jonah didn't want the people to do. Why? Because he knew God's nature. And that gets us to chapter 4. So this is where I want us to uh, kind of focus our attention. Let's read together, beginning in Jonah chapter 4. By the way, this is, I, this, this is the frowning chapter, this is what I label it. Jonah is now very displeased. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? We weren't privy to this back in chapter 1, but we are now. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Think about that question for a moment. I'll get into it a little bit more in, in just a moment. When God says to you, do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah is upset because God has shown compassion 
to people he determined did not deserve compassion. He knew God's nature, and he suspected that if he went and preached to these people that he... I mean, Jonah didn't want anything to do with these folks. And he is now so upset that he says before God, I might as well just die. It would be better if my life were over than to, than to deal with the fact that you have shown compassion to this other nation. It's a scene that, is rem that, that uh, kind of is similar to the narrative of Job. Most of you would familiar Job be, be familiar with Job from, from the text of the Bible. If you're not, it's, the, it's a lengthy book right before Psalms in the Scripture. Job is this righteous man. Remember your trivia? He's one of the three most righteous men of the Old Testament, says the prophet Ezekiel. Right? Job was this righteous man who had plenty of possessions, a wonderful family. Uh, Satan is given permission to strike him. He loses all of his possessions. He loses all of his family except his wife. His body is stricken with these sores that are all over him. And, and Job does not get to this place all at once. But eventually, after these lengthy uh, consultations with his so-called friends who come to him, offering him advice and counsel that was not good, Job himself gets to this place in where, he cr where he cries out to God and says, it would just be better if I were dead, if my life were over, than to be where I am right now. And after all this time, if you go through chapter after chapter in the book of Job, you finally get to the, to the end of the book, and there's about three or four chapters there in which God finally shows up to speak. And when God shows up to speak, the first thing he does is to directly address Job. And it's as if God says, we've heard from everybody else, and now you're going to hear from me. And the first thing he says to Job is, tell me where you were when I laid the foundations of the world. Tell me if you have understanding. Can I paraphrase for you? God says to, to Job, all right, put on your big boy pants because we're going to have a conversation here. He's heard Job crying out to him, oh, it is so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad. I have every reason to wish that my life were over. And God says, really? Is that the way you should feel? Let's have a conversation about it. And then you get into this long uh, discourse in which God is just demonstrating to Job that Job really doesn't have a case to make before God. And God is going to do the same thing with Jonah, only rather than a lengthy discourse, what God uses is an illustration. Maybe Job was an experiential learner. I don't know, maybe God knew that about him. We're not told. But God uses a, a picture, an image, a, a life experience to teach Jonah where he has gone wrong. Verse 5 continues in, in Jonah chapter 4, saying, Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant 
And it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. There you have it one more time. So Jonah gets up and he goes out, and, and it's kind of like Jonah is hoping beyond hope that maybe there will still, still be some heavenly fire raining down. Like, there's this slim possibility, and I'm going to hang around just to see that maybe God will still bring some judgment down. And if God chooses to bring some heavenly fire down upon these Ninevites, he wants a front row seat. And that's what he's waiting on. He wants God's judgment. And if it comes, he wants to watch. And so he finds a place where he has good eyesight, where he has a good perspective, and he waits. And God says, okay. He causes a plant to grow up. And the, the plant grows up and it provides this nice shade for Jonah as he's sitting in the sun. Folks from Texas can appreciate this. Can you not? In the midst of the summer, you know the power of the sun, don't you? When it's beating down on you, it's rough. So even when we can't get inside in our nice, nice comfortable air conditioning, at least you can find some what? Some shade. Shade is pretty nice, isn't it? You can get the power of that sun off of you, and it makes a difference. So God causes this plant to grow up, and it provides this nice shade for Jonah. And when Jonah's in the shade, he really digs that. That's pretty good. And then the next day, God sends a worm to eat the plant, and the plant goes away. And so in the midst of the scorching sun and this blistering east wind, Jonah isn't happy anymore. And once again, he goes to this place of just saying, oh, it's so bad, I just need to die. And then in verse 9, it says, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Jonah doubles down on it. Yes, I have, ang I have reason to be angry. If the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you ever says to you, do you have good reason to be angry? Or if it's not anger, substitute, substitute whatever emotion may be at the top of the list in that moment. If you ever hear God saying, do you have good reason to feel this way? I can almost assure you that every time the answer needs to be no. Or he wouldn't be asking the question. And yet, do you know what we so often do? We grit our teeth, we clench our fists, and we raise our voices, and we beat the table, and we say, yes, I have reason, I have good reason to feel like this. Tell me I'm not the only one in this room. 
It is the way. When we are in the midst of whatever it is that has gripped us, we will do exactly like Jonah and say, yes, I have good reason to feel like this. And God says, really? The problem that Jonah had is that he had lost his perspective. His alignment was not where God's was. And so God used this illustration to demonstrate that to him. God goes on in verses 10 and 11. And by the way, the book of Jonah kind of ends in a weird way. It's not a nice, uh, completely wrapped up finish to a, to a narrative. It almost just kind of leaves things hanging. But you get the point. God says in verse 10, that The Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow which came up overnight and perished overnight. Do you see what he said to Jonah? He said, Jonah, you had an interest in this plant, but you did not have an investment in this plant. There's a difference. Jonah had an interest in the plant because Jonah gained something from it, namely shade, comfort, blessing. Expand the thought, if you will. It's like God is saying, I brought this blessing into your life. You did not earn it. You did not do anything to get it, but I gave it to you anyway. And when I took it away from you, you lost your wits. You had this interest in the blessing you were receiving, and you've lost your mind when it got taken away. You were so wrapped up in that. Now... Listen to what God says. Verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left as well as many animals? Think about what God is saying there. And, and by the way, that, that phrasing, do not know their left hand from the right or the right or the left, that's simply a way of expressing they do not know the good from evil. They're, they're, they don't know right from wrong. They don't know what they need to know. They need a message. They need truth. And they have a, need to have an opportunity to experience who God is, who I am, and to receive his mercy. God is saying, Jonah, you had no investment in that plant. But these people are my creation. They, too, are people who are made in my image. Do you not think I should have compassion on them? I have an investment in them, and therefore I have great interest in them. Jonah's alignment was not with God's alignment. When we get called into God's mission... We get called to align ourselves with the heart of God, and the heart of God is, above everything else, a heart of compassion. It's a heart of mercy. There is judgment in God, but God would prefer mercy. And God is saying to Jonah, I, I get that you, you know, your focus is narrow. Your focus is only for your people. You could care less about what happens to the Ninevites. You could care less of what happens to the Assyrians. But I care. 
because they too are people of my creation. Think about that message today. Think about the ways that that would challenge our thinking, our mindset, our habits. When it's so very easy for us to say, well, I don't really care what happens to them. That people group, that nation, those folks who live there. But God says, I care. I care. That's what mission is all about. The fact that there is not one person walking on the face of this earth about whom God does not care. And if God cares about them, he expects God's people to care about them. That's the heart of mission. And God says, I have appointed you to be in mission. Jonah was called of God to be a missionary, to bring a message that would hopefully bring repentance and reconciliation to a people group. He became obedient, but he didn't, still didn't align his heart. And that's really where the issue lies. Our memory of Jonah, the narrative of Jonah, is wrapped up about a whale. And we, and we should remember that, because that in itself is the image that makes its way into the New Testament. Jesus himself told people that, you know, no sign will be given except the giant sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days in the earth, in the tomb. So there's definitely a parallel to Christ. The difference between Jonah and Jesus is that Jesus went willingly. He walked into the belly of the whale. He walked to the cross and the tomb. He gave himself willingly so that God's redemptive plan could come about. Jonah had to get swallowed by the whale unwillingly. And even when he was spit out, his heart still wasn't aligned with God. And that's where the text of Jonah speaks to us, friends. This is not just a children's story in which we can remember, yeah, he got swallowed by a fish and three days later he, he came back out. Isn't that great? Look, this is a prophet whose heart was still not where God's heart is. And that's a message that challenges us. God has made you and me to be missionaries. We know this thing called what? The Great Commission. Matthew wraps up his gospel narrative with these words that have become so familiar to us. Go therefore and make disciples. Of whom? What? All nations. Like, he didn't say your neighborhood. <laughs> the people who share your skin color. The people who... Uh, just live in your state or your nation. He said, go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He has made you and me to be missionaries, but we will not fulfill the commission. At least we will not do it 
joyfully and willingly and eagerly and passionately until our heart for people is aligned with where God's heart for people is. I came across a quote by a 19th century Scottish missionary named David Livingstone. By the way, that's a great name for a Christian, isn't it? Livingstone? Remember Peter says in the New Testament, you are like living stones? Okay, that's, I just thought that was a neat observation. David Livingstone said yeah, this. He said, how can a commission by an earthly king be considered an honor and yet a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? I think that's a great observation. If you and I were commissioned by an earthly king, an earthly ruler, someone of, of great importance and position, if they came to you and said, I'm giving you a commission, we would consider that such a great honor. And yet, when the heavenly king gives us a commission, we consider it a burden, a sacrifice. Doesn't that seem odd? God has given us an opportunity to become missionaries to the world. Our passion for that will not come until we have truly put on hearts of compassion for every single person on this earth. I think that's a challenge for us today. Let me share these words written by the Apostle Paul among the favorite verses of many people. Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I invite you today, friends, to put on that heart of God, a heart of compassion, a heart for people, that we would not be like Jonah, but eagerly missionaries for the world. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you looked so kindly and so lovingly toward us that you made somebody a missionary to us. Father, it might have been a, a parent, a grandparent, um, somebody in our neighborhood, but somebody, God, somebody cared enough about us to make sure that we fell in love with Jesus. Maybe there's somebody here today, Lord, who has just never been given the opportunity to fall in love with you and to come to Jesus in a saving way. Father, I pray that if that's the case for anyone listening right now, that they would surrender their heart to you and just reach out and ask you, Lord, for the love that surpasses everything to overwhelm their heart, to come in and, and give the assurance of forgiveness and the promise of life. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that you would change our hearts. Because God, I just know that 
somewhere deep down inside, in some way or another, we would find ourselves like Jonah, just unwilling, God, to go where your heart would lead. Lord, I know that it would uh, cause us to go to places that might be different, unfamiliar, or even uncomfortable. I know that it might cause us to be in conversation with those who are different than us, people who would have questions or maybe even challenges, people who may not even like us. But Lord, (laughs) we know that that is the calling that you've given us. So I pray, God, that you would change our hearts and make us compassionate toward all people, that your gospel may go out and that all may hear that Christ is the Savior of the world. We praise you. We thank you for the good work. Thank you for making us part of this great body called the church. We give you praise and glory this day. We do it in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.